If you enjoyed this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at If Vines Could Talk. We believe Michigan makes great wine. It's an up-and-coming region, already producing world-class award-winning wines. Our mission is to enhance the prestige of Michigan wine and help the world learn more about all we have to offer. Welcome to podcast number 23. Jamie and I continue our conversation about grape varieties and today focus on those commonly found in the Leelanau Peninsula and Old Mission Peninsula AVAs. Pop open a bottle of Michigan wine and follow along. In recent episodes, we've talked about the grapes found in Michigan and in the Lake Michigan Shore AVA. Today, we're going to narrow the conversation once again to the key grapes of the two major AVAs located in the northwest part of the mitten. Again, while acreage statistics are hard to come by, we can talk about the grapes that are grown here and the ones we believe are making the best wines. What we do know is less than 20% of Michigan's vineyard acreage is located in these two AVAs. There are virtually no juice grapes grown up north. All of the juice grapes are grown in the Lake Michigan shore. However, in that part of the state, historically farms there have been known for their tart cherry production. Over recent decades, cherry farms have given way to more and more vineyards that are growing hybrids and vinifera. And that's interesting to me that, first of all, that there's really no juice grapes grown up there because they're a pretty hearty grape. So I'm surprised that there isn't more, but they are the cherry capital of the world. Of the world. Of the world, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. But to hear that they're now giving cherry farms up for more and more vineyards for wine grapes is kind of interesting as well. So let's talk about a couple of the varieties that, um, that we find up there. One is Marquette. Marquette is actually gaining quite a bit of traction and uh, becoming fairly famous in its own right. It is a blue or black berried variety developed as early as 1989 and finally introduced in 2006 by the University of Minnesota. It's a cousin of Frontenac, which you have told me a little bit about, which is a well-known French-American hybrid. It's also the grandson of Pinot Noir. It ends up a cross between a couple of hybrids. It has really good resistance to mildew, black rot, and it's cold hardy. It'll survive to temperatures as low as minus 37 centigrade. That's cold. So here's a fun fact. Did you know that the Marquette is the third most planted hybrid in Michigan behind Vidal Blanc and Chamberson? I did not. How about that? Marquette is one of those grapes that I feel like I could probably pick out of a red blend. You have a better palate than I do. Well, Marquette to me has that discernible anise finish I pick up. So to your point, these the wines that the Marquette grape makes, they're typically medium bodied. They have aromas of cherry, black currants, blackberries, 
better examples of the wine demonstrate more complex aromas like tobacco and leather with a little bit of spicy pepper on the finish. And that might be also what you're picking up. That might be. So let's talk about at least one vinifera that, that is notably grown in the Leelanau Peninsula and Old Mission Peninsula. Because these are further north, we tend to think of them more as a white wine region, at least I do. Um, and not exclusively, they are doing some uh, things with Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, Blau Francish, other varieties. However, the, uh, these vinifera wines do tend to be Alsatian in style, and I find them to be tremendously yummy. And one of my favorites is Riesling. And Riesling wine, particularly those coming from these two AVAs, are among my favorites. Also, another fun fact, did you know that the most planted vinifera in Michigan is the Riesling? I did not. 25% of the vinifera grown in this state is Riesling. That's interesting. I would have thought it to be up high, but to me, I guess I would have thought Chardonnay would have been first. And that might be a function of where you live, because I think down here we do probably grow more Chardonnay than they do up there mm -hmm. as a percent. But uh, a little bit more about the grape. So the Riesling originated in Germany in the, in the Rhine region. It's very aromatic, um, and it makes all kinds of wines. You can find dry, semi-sweet, sweet, even sparkling white wines that come from the Riesling. They're usually varietally pure. That's kind of hard to say, and they're seldom oaked. Worldwide, it's included in the top three. You know, we always think of Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc, but Riesling is right up there. It's, uh, it's one of the three most popular wine types, white wine types in the world. Um, another interesting thing that I've learned about Riesling is that it's very terroir ex expressive meaning that the character of the wine is really tremendously influenced by the, by the wine's place of origin, where the grapes are grown. I discovered this a few years ago when I had my first Old Mission Peninsula Riesling and learned that the soils up there contained lava and volcanic ash from a long dormant Upper Peninsula volcano. We don't have that down here. And so that white wine, that Riesling, had a crispness and a minerality that I found quite amazing. More than down here, I really like the Riesling up there much better than I do Riesling from the Lake Michigan shore. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a little lighter. It definitely has more of that minerality in the aroma and in the flavor, where down here I get more of the flower notes, more honeysuckle. Uh, the wine is a little more golden in color. Not gold, but golden. And it has a more, I don't want to say heaviness to it, but it's, it's definitely not as a, a light and thin wine as what you find up there. Right, definitely more body. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, you make a really great observation that I hadn't thought of. It is definitely more yellow. Mm -hmm. right? There's a much more color to it than the Riesling from up north. I still like the ones up there better. Yeah. But that's just me. <laughs> Jamie, why don't you tell us about Pinot Noir? And you know, you think that Pinot Noir is a very thin-skinned grape, 
that probably wouldn't do very well up north because it's so cold up there, but it actually produces pretty good up there. It's done in small clusters that kind of resemble a pine cone, and that's where the name came from. Oh, really? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's noticeably, in the France region, it's noticeably more in Burgundy. Well, that's what red Burgundy is, right? It's Pinot Noir. Right, mm-hmm. right. Okay. Yeah. But typically is a very thin or um, light-bodied wine. Probably one of the most light-bodied reds there is. And it has a lot of, well, it can have a lot of spicy notes to it. Not like hot spice, but just like spicy um, towards the end. But there can also be Pinot Noirs that are much more berry-forward and fruit notes rather than the spice notes. So you can get one of two kind of um, results. I don't know if that's dependent on... Well, it's probably dependent on the terroir, the winemaker's technique, and that vintage of that year, and the weather that created that grape, right? Right. Is there a particular style of Pinot Noir that you find in the Leelanau Peninsula or Old Mission Peninsula that might be different than maybe down here or Oregon or Burgundy or is there really any stylistic differences? I think they're very similar. Like I said, some of them can be a little more fruit forward. So for example, uh, we have had the Bel Lago Pinot Noir and to me that's very fruit forward and a lot of berry notes where was just at Bryce Estate and noticed that their Pinot Noir was a little more spicy. And Dublon in Baroda, which is down here, has a little more spice to it. But then the Pinot Noir from Marlin Vineyards is a little more berry and, and fruit forward also. Mm-hmm. So, but all are still very like light reds to drink. But I think their variation in the finish and in the flavor can, can vary a little bit. And I'm not exactly sure if that's terroir, you know, the weather of that vintage, or the style of the winemaker. Right. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. And Pinot Noir is like the most common red grape up north. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we talked about Marquette, but that's a hybrid. Right. I guess most common vinifera, red vinifera, is Pinot Noir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, and and a very easy drinker. That's one that doesn't really require food so much. I think it actually can be drank on its own without food. But obviously with food, you know, a lighter um, meat, I would say, like a chicken or a duck, um, turkey, Mm -hmm. like a a pork roast or, um, you know, pork medallions would be excellent with it. Mm Mm-hmm. I personally feel it's too light for like a steak, but I think a lighter meat would be lovely with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Poultry. Mm-hmm. Some There are some Chinese dishes that my wife makes that I think would be good with Pinot Noir. Uh, you might remember that fish stew that we had a while back. I think that would go well with Pinot Noir. Absolutely. It's not... The the stew is not so spicy that it would overpower the wine. Right, right. Absolutely. The wine would definitely complement that. Mm-hmm. 
Let's talk a little bit about Pinot Gris. Okay. Since we're on the Pinots. Sure. Um, so Pinot Gris is another white grape that we find in the Leelanau Peninsula and Old Mission Peninsula. Interesting grape. It's a mutation of Pinot Noir. And it's also like Pinot Noir from Burgundy. There are 284,000 acres of Pinot Gris worldwide. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know how that stacks up necessarily against other varieties, but that sounds like a lot. It's very widely grown, 20 different countries. So, And we know here in the United States, there's quite a bit grown in Oregon and here mm -hmm. in Michigan. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one thing that's worth talking about a little bit because people get confused about this, and I get confused about this, is what's the difference between a wine that's labeled Pinot Gris versus a wine that's labeled Pinot Grigio? Mm -hmm. Right? Because it's the same grape. Mm -hmm. Right. But a lot of people use them simultaneously or interchangeably. Right. You know? Yeah. And I see that here in Michigan mm -hmm. is there's really no, at least as far as I can tell, there is no real discernible difference between what a Michigan winemaker labels one versus the other. Mm -hmm. I think when you go back to Europe and you talk about this, the regions where those two styles are widely known, mm -hmm. right? Pinot Gris is considered to be Alsatian tends to be a little more full-bodied and spicy, whereas mm -hmm. Pinot Grigio is lighter-bodied and more acidic, and that comes from Italy. Mm -hmm. And I actually struggle with that differentiation because you'd think the fuller-bodied version would come from a slightly warmer region, mm -hmm. and Italy is clearly warmer than Alsace. Right. That stylistically is the difference between the two. Yeah. And I had been told, and, and this may be a, another thing that could possibly be, again, a winemaker's style, that yes, Pinot Gris is the French or Alsatian, and, and the way that they make Pinot Gris is to ferment it in stainless and finish it in French oak, which gives it a little longer finish and a more fuller bodied uh, wine as opposed to the Pinot Grigio because it has more texture to it. It has more uh, creamy notes to it, where the Pinot Grigio is Italian and always done in stainless. So fermentation and aging in stainless, which keeps it that crisp, quick finish, more acidity, um, the lighter notes, lighter bodied. Um, so I think that's how I always thought of it. But you're right. People kind of still muddy that water between the two right well especially i think especially here yeah in, the, in michigan mm -hmm. i had forgotten that point that you just made that the alsatian version of pinot gris is aged a bit in oak and that will give it more body and take away some of the acidity and mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. yep 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 yeah interesting though i've had several Pinot Gris from up north, mm -hmm. or Pinot Grigio, uh, you pick, <laughs> and I find them to be simply amazing. Mm -hmm. I remember having a Verterra Pinot, I think it was a Pinot Grigio, was, a, was the label, mm -hmm. a while back, and 
I just happened to open it on a day that my wife made that fish stew. Oh. Fish and cucumber stew. Uh-huh. And that pairing was phenomenal. And the wine by itself was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So I think Pinot Gris is definitely something they can do really, really well up north. Yes, I agree. So what other grapes are we going to talk about? Let's talk about Chardonnay. Okay, let's. Chardonnay. What? A, what you know, it's funny. I uh, was never a big Chardonnay drinker until probably six years ago. I was a Pinot Grigio and Sauv Blanc lover, and of course dry reds. But I wasn't a really big Chardonnay lover until one vintage at Blanc. That's when I had been working there at the time turned me around to it and now i love chardonnay and i love it always and it's so interesting chardonnay is just such an interesting wine because mm-hmm. it can be made so many different ways so it's originating from burgundy but of course it's grown all over the place and there's so many different versions of it to to make the actual wine so you can either do a completely stainless version, which still keeps some of the uh, notes of the Chardonnay grape intact as far as that wine goes, but it's much lighter. Then you can do kind of what they call burgundy style, which is fermented and stainless, and then it goes into some version of neutral oak barrels, usually French oak barrels. Neutral, meaning impartial you know, does not impart any oak or anything. It just kind of helps to smooth the wine out, kind of give it a little more body. But they call it surly style. So they either do it in the barrel or they do it in the tank. And I think mostly it's done in the tank, this surly style mm-hmm. with the batonnage. Mm-hmm. So surly style means it sits on the dead yeast cells because yeast is either added or the natural yeast eats the sugar from the grape and creates alcohol. Well, once the yeast can no longer eat anymore, they die. And they leave those dead yeast cells in the wine itself, and they call batonnage, which is French for stick. They stir the juice up with the dead yeast cells in it, you know, causing it to kind of interact with it a little bit. So it doesn't really impart any oakiness to it necessarily but it gives it this roundness for the wine and, and a, a whole nother texture then from there they can either bottle it you know filter it out obviously and then bottle it or put it in a barrel for a little bit and usually they'll put it in like a neutral oak barrel so that it doesn't really get real buttery or toasty or you can do the whole fermentation in stainless and then throw it in any type of oak barrel you want to whether it be new which will really intensify that butter and the toast and just give it such a a texture that you could drink completely room temperature or any version of that oak barrel whether it be used once used a few times neutral old they've even they even blend you know they'll they'll put them in different types and blend them together until they get what they want but that one Chardonnay that I was telling you about was the 2013 Chardonnay that was done in all brand new French oak barrels. And it was so buttery and creamy and I I would drink it room temperature. I wouldn't even chill it. Mm -hmm. It was so good. It stood up to 
heavy Italian dishes. It could stand up to a steak. It was amazing. It really was. So there's different variations of Chardonnay that you can that you can do with it. It's very versatile, I think. You know, it just it's just one of those grapes that a lot of people they think of that super heavy butter and it can be, but it doesn't have to be. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well I we've talked about this a few times. I'm not a huge Chardonnay fan, but decidedly unoaked. Yeah. And I've had a couple from up north that I think are just amazing versions of an unoaked Chardonnay. Mm -hmm. uh, I never really got into the buttery, creamy. I prefer the crisp, light um, styles of Chardonnay. Yeah, it's. I think it's. It lends itself to drinking more without food. If it's in the unoaked version, where you could sit out on the porch and have it, but it would also go well with food. The buttery Chardonnay kind of lends itself to more of a big meal, you know? <laughs> like, right. Well, again, poultry. Mm -hmm. I guess I would probably stick with poultry. Yeah. Maybe some versions of fish. Yeah. Something a, a little, little heavier. Heavier, yeah. Salmon. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. Let's talk about Cab Franc. Okay. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> One of Steve's favorites. Yes. <laughs> so Cab Franc is another red that is grown, a red vinifera that's grown up north, Leelanau Peninsula, Old Mission Peninsula. Clearly there's far more Pinot Noir than Cab Franc. But there are a few wineries that are doing some pretty amazing things. I remember a year or so ago, I had a rosé from Bluestone that was a Cobb Franc rosé that drank like silk. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just, it really made me sit up and take notice. It was really good. Cobb Franc, obviously, most people know this, reigns from Bordeaux. It's typically used in Bordeaux-style blends with with Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, mm -hmm. right? Uh, it's also found extensively in the Loire Valley, Chenin to be specific, mm -hmm. and in fact, that's what they label the bottles, right? It's Chenin, mm -hmm. which means it's Cab Franc. Mm -hmm. The reason it does so well up north is because it's an earlier ripener. You're not gonna find Cab Sauv up north. I mean, there might be a couple of vineyards that are growing some, mm -hmm. but it just takes too long to ripen, whereas Cab Franc will ripen two weeks earlier than Cab Sauv. And as we know, two weeks is a long time in watching and waiting for that grape to ripen and not over-ripen, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Because it's cooler climate, and we are too down here, but all of Michigan is cooler climate. You know, you end up with a grape, you end up with wines that tend to be a little bit more aromatic, fruit forward, tend to have some vegetal qualities. Have you had any Cab Franc from up north? Uh, yes, actually I have. Yep, when I was up there last month, I had a Cab Franc Reserve from Bryce Estate, which was really lovely. Oh yes, I had that too. Yeah, that was very nice. But I'm trying to remember. I don't think it, I don't I don't think there was any others that I that I had while I was up there. It's they're they're very far and few between up there. They are. I had a few, but there's nothing that stands out in my mind when we were up there a while back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, it's a great grape, and uh, the winemakers up there say the same thing that we say down here, and that Cobb Franc is the red grape for Michigan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. And something I find interesting about Cab Franc is it is very, sometimes very hard to decipher that it specifically is Cab Franc. Because Cab Franc, although it's a lighter red in color, or, you know, when you pour it in a glass, and it has those fruit and berry notes, depending on how it's made, it can take on some other qualities, like a different type of wine. So like Merlot or Capsov. I mean, I've had some, or even Carmenere, which are all derived from Cap Franc. But have you noticed that some Cap Francs have a more distinct pepper, green pepper uh, aroma and finish to them than others? And again, is that the terroir region uh, winemaker style? It's it's interesting to me that there can be a lot of variety in a Cap Franc. Yeah, there there can be. You actually raised several points, and I want to comment on two of them. One is stylistically, well, not so much stylistically, but chemically. Mm-hmm. If you want to get really nerdy about this, the chemical composition of Cap Franc isn't that much different than Cap Sauv. Which I guess kind of makes sense because mm-hmm. Cab Franc is one of the parents right. of Cab Sauv. Mm-hmm. And, and so therefore it can take on characteristics of Cab Sauv, mm-hmm. right? Particularly if it's later ripened, higher bricks, better year, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I found that to be an interesting fact. The other comment you talked about was that green pepper, mm-hmm. which can be off-putting to some people and in fact some people attribute it to Brett which we know is not a good thing right mm-hmm. but even but there's even a debate about that and that's a whole another podcast right is Brett good or is Brett bad and I think in most circles we consider it not so good especially mm-hmm. in Cab Franc mm-hmm. and and so the point being that Brett can give you some of that green pepper note mm-hmm. if you will that some people find off-putting. Mm-hmm. I personally don't mind it. I don't either. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think, kind of back to your, your original point, why do some have more than others? I think it's a variety of things. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's the terrar. It's mm-hmm. the, it's the vintage. Mm-hmm. You're probably going to have less bell pepper, green bell pepper, in a really hot, dry harvest than you would otherwise mm-hmm. right and and some of it's the winemaker of course as well sure so sure fascinating grape yes certainly a favorite of mine <laughs> there's probably one other grape we ought to talk about as okay. it relates to the up north folks sure and that would probably be Gewürztraminer. I love Gewürztraminer. <laughs> demeanor is such an interesting varietal. Mostly for me, I get lots of floral notes off of it and really floral, florally floral notes like lilies, like really um, very, not rose. I, there's, there's just a specific, almost like lily of the valley, gardenia, mm-hmm. almost mm-hmm. like a real flowery flower note, you know? 
Sometimes I pick up honeysuckle, which yeah. can be really sweet and aromatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have had Gewurztraminer a few ways. Um, I've had it kind of a, a sweeter version, and then I've had a dry version that smelled and tasted sweet, which was really interesting uh, to be bone dry, but yet taste and smell like it's a sweet wine. Mm-hmm. And that's due to that high acidity that made it that, you know, really sweet smell and taste was right. really good brings the fruit out absolutely absolutely so i always thought gewurztraminer was a german grape so did i <laughs> it sounds german it does sound german yes much like riesling and you know I, right. I just assumed it was also in that region well sort of in that region but a little further south than that so it actually originated in italy Northern Italy, but in Italy. Mm-hmm. It's it's very interesting to me because I just always assumed that it was a German grape. Sounds German, you know. Right. Um, but it's actually, it's best in cool climates. And it's a mutation of a Sauvignon Blanc, but not Sauvignon Blanc. Right. It's a totally Sauvignon. different grape. Savignon Blanc? Yes. We'll have to put that in the show notes so people know what we're talking about. Yes. Because it's spelled very similar uh-huh. to Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> but I would pronounce it Savignon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But yes, it's a it's a really interesting grape all around. Yes. Um, and not a lot of people know about it. Because it's not like Riesling. Riesling is a very popular, everybody kind of knows Riesling. But it's not very different from a Riesling. I mean, Riesling also can have that kind of sweet note to it. Riesling, though, to me, I get a little more um, citrus notes from it and almost an effervescence from a lot of them. Where Gewürztraminer, I don't really get that effervescence from. Um, and usually, like you said, it's more of that honeysuckle. Yeah, it has some citrus to it, but Riesling is much more pronounced. Yeah, to me, Gewürztraminer has the kind of a spiciness to it, mm-hmm. um, like allspice or anise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a delicate kind of spiciness to it, which makes me want to drink it with pumpkin pie. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, I had, that's interesting that you say that, because I had gone uh, out to lunch and I grabbed dessert to go, a pumpkin cheesecake, slice of pumpkin cheesecake. I went back to local pour and Chalet and I split it, drinking a glass of Gewürztraminer, and it was amazing. Yeah, see, there you go. It was amazing. I think there's that, like, so in pumpkin pie, and, you know, just like wine, there's a zillion different recipes for pumpkin pie, right? Sure. But most recipes have allspice in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what pairs, that spice is what pairs so well. Yes. With Gewürztraminer. I agree. I love a, a good, dry Gewürztraminer. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we have many in Michigan, and I think probably a few more from up north. Right. Than down here. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree that there's more up north than down here. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about the grapes of Michigan, check out the website michiganwinecountry.com. 
they have an article there that dives in extensively in the various varieties of grapes that we grow here in the state of Michigan. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast, If Vines Could Talk, on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If Vines Could Talk comes to you from Vineyard View Recording Company in Baroda, Michigan. Produced, edited, and hosted by Steve Salisbury. Co-host is Jamie Newman. Narration by Sarah Spoonholtz. Copyright 2023.